welcome to season two of the Sober Experiment podcast with Alex and Lisa. Our podcast is for anyone and everyone, whether you're still drinking, thinking about ditching the booze, or you've already quit alcohol for good. Our podcast is raw and still unedited to this day. Join us and our guests for tears, emotion, and some hilarious laugh out loud moments. Season two is sponsored by Lunar Holistics. Lunar Holistics offers a wide range of professional home study courses, including counselling, life coaching, and NLP. They also offer courses in beauty therapy and for the most spiritual minded of you, they've got courses in tarot, palmistry, astrology and psychic development. So if you've been considering a new career or you want to learn just for fun, no matter where you are in the world, Lunar Holistics will enable you to gain a fully recognised, accredited and insurable qualification and no previous academic qualifications are required. Lunar courses are easy to follow and you can study from home at any time that suits you. We're really excited that Luna has offered to sponsor this season as everything that they do aligns perfectly with our core values. I'm Alex, one half of the Sober Experiment. And I'm Lisa, the other half. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Alex. Oh, I've had such a weird 24 hours. Have you? Yeah. 24 hours been all right. (laughs) (laughs) No, I've had quite... um... A hectic 24 hours. A lot a lot happens now. You know, like, once you're sober, don't we do a lot in 24 hours? Like, we're just so used to it. You don't realise that you're doing so much in that amount of time. But, like, thinking about the last 24 hours, a lot has gone on. I got up mega early this morning, and now I've decided, well, say mega early, I'm getting up at half six now, which is early for me, but it's not enough. It's actually not enough now. I need to move another half an hour now. That's what I found, like, I've tried six o'clock and that ain't enough. So I um, set my alarm for 5.30, which I was doing really good, actually. Remember, I was, yeah, like, I raving about it. Of course, like, this is a brand new, it's like a secret club getting up at 5.30 and it's amazing. That lasted, like, a week. And then and my alarm set for 5.30. But I keep snoozing. But today, I was up at 5.49. I actually had a cold shower this morning, right? And I didn't oh. take advice. No, I didn't take the advice, did I? And apparently over a course of a week or two, you're supposed to just do your feet and then your feet. I told you this. I know you did, but you know me, I always think I know better and I thought I'll just get in. Oh my God, I actually had pains in my heart. <laughs> <laughs> no, really. No, you can't do this. We were looking at that Wim Hof thing. Um, they're doing like a a retreat in Scotland and I was looking at it and it said to practice for this retreat you need to start at your feet one morning and then kind of work your way up gradually over a couple of weeks you can't just go jumping in showers you'll kill yourself I nearly did kill myself I swear to god I actually I know that sounds dead dramatic but I left it running I brushed my teeth I was there I thought I'll get in and I, and I just thought, right, I did what I normally do, like five, four, three, two, one. Yeah. Cold, but shit me. It wasn't just cold. It, honest to God. I, I felt like I had hypothermia, but it worked. I was only in for a few seconds. I did that. Do you remember when I had an accidental shower with Manny from uh, <laughs> from Get Fit for Mental Wellness? And, and then I told him and it was really awkward. Story, talk- <laughs> clarify what happened because it does now sound like you've showered with him. Well, I felt like it was so weird. I woke up one morning and he was doing a live video on Instagram about getting into a cold shower. So I just thought, as I was watching it, he was like getting undressed, ready for it. Not naked, obviously. Like men just do it in shorts, don't they? I don't know. I've <laughs> well, never for- seen that, it? 
Well, anyway, he was doing that live. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to do this at the same time as him. So as he was getting undressed, I started getting undressed. And then I kind of put my phone up on the side in the bathroom, got in the cold shower. And then I just thought, this is the weirdest thing. I'm having a shower with him and he doesn't even know. But I lasted, like you, just a few seconds. He was still in the shower and I was dressed and everything. (laughs) The funniest thing was when we went to Scamandon Steps and you actually told him you'd had an accidental shower with him. Oh, that's so awkward. It wasn't though, was it? Because he didn't make us feel like that, did he? No, he didn't. He's such a lovely guy doing amazing, amazing things for mental health. So actually, if anybody... Um, is li- if anybody's listening I hope somebody's listening <laughs> there's loads of people listening I promise <laughs> but yeah please check out Get Fit for Mental Wellness because they are doing amazing things and yeah you too can have a shower with money <laughs> <laughs> if you want one <laughs> if you want one not yeah. me if you really want that might not be as good of an option but you know never mind <laughs> but speaking of people who are doing amazing things for mental health and in particular men's mental health our today's guest who we interviewed actually yesterday, um, but we're watching for now, um, was amazing. And it's um, Michael Macy, who is the author of Young Defender. And he's actually, um, I do mention this in the in, in the intro when I introduce him, but he's 12, well, he's nearly 13 years sober now, isn't he? And yeah. honestly, I left that podcast, and this is why I've had a weird 24 hours, I have just reevaluated my entire existence based on that one podcast. It was just incredible. And his story is, I I do think we should put out a little bit of a trigger warning, actually, because 100%. I, like you said, when it made you think, he's like, we kind of came off the podcast and just stared at each other for a little bit. And I think for both of us, it set off so many triggers in different ways and made you think about different things. And what an incredible man he is like so much love for him honestly I just wanted to give him in fact I sent a message afterwards saying I'm not even a hugger but when I see you we are definitely having a big hug because what just a lovely guy with an incredible sad but inspiring story and if you haven't read that book then then you've got to do it you have got to do it. I mean, and what was lovely, because we both listened to his book on Audible, speaking yeah. life and hearing that he is the voice behind his book. So they're his emotions, they're his stories, they're his way of telling it. And he's just such a down-to-earth guy. I, like Lisa, she wanted to hug him. I wanted to scoop his little boy self out of him and just hold on to him so much, honestly. And it brought, like you say, it brought a lot of emotions. Different in both of us, didn't it? So like for me... Yeah. Don't get me wrong, my childhood is not anywhere near as difficult as what he went through, and I mean that sincerely. But as our friend Josh Conley would say, it doesn't mean that mine isn't valid to me. So, you know, it brought out so many emotions of my childhood. And and because you could pull yourself out and look in on it, and I can't explain that. You'll understand when you listen to it, but it really did, like, made me think and reflect so much but also realise how bloody lucky I've been. You know, it it 
sometimes it's a bit of a monopoly what you're born into. And it's come through so much. So have most of us, you know, a lot of us on on our journeys have come through a lot and it is very much your story to own and your story to tell. It really did make me think how actually grateful, even though I've been through shit, how grateful I am for my life and and how grateful I was to have met him. Oh, yeah. For you, it brought different emotions out, didn't it? It brought emotions out as a parent. Absolutely. And I know I've spoken in the podcast a few times, but never really spoken about it a lot. And I think we had this discussion last night, Alex, afterwards, that it's something that I'm going to bring out more in in our podcast and talk about a lot more because I hold on to a lot of shame and a lot of guilt about parenting especially when my youngest two were going through a very very difficult time and I know I briefly mentioned about criminal exploitation and sexual exploitation around young children and especially in my area and as we discussed I'm really blase not blase about it but I'm not very good at talking about it yet so I'm learning to talk about it a lot more and I think by speaking to Michael it made me realize that it needs talking about from not just from a child's perspective, but actually parents that are struggling with their children and parenting and guilt and shame around this. So, um, yeah, something that we'll be talking more of. I think you hold, not just you, I'm talking generally, people hold more shame when they hold themselves responsible for some of the things that have happened to their children, especially if they've had some form of addiction or they've been drinking or they've, you know, whatever it might be. It's like there's almost an element of blame, self-blame there, isn't there? Because you realise that now you're not drinking, you're not putting yourself or your children in that situation and I'm not, it's like self-blame that shouldn't exist. You know, we're all human. We're all parents. We're all doing, well, not all parents, but we're parents. We're all doing the best we can do with the tools we have at whatever moment in life we are at. Definitely. I just think it's really difficult, especially if you've, like I was a binge drinker. So I would go at the weekends and kind of, get absolutely slaughtered because I thought that was my time to do that it was a break and and when my life started crumbling around me my way to deal with it and the only thing I knew where to deal with it was to um go and numb it to to get rid of it but meanwhile while that's happening you, you, everything around you is not being fixed if you're going to the pub drinking it away and I think that is something that I still massively hold on to you know like actually when my life was going to shit and I have done now you know I did stop drinking because I knew I needed to show up for my children for myself for the people around me but that's not said the guilt that I feel for numbing it out for so long and, and it's that thought like would it have happened if I'd not been going out at the weekends, was that a part of it? You know, like I was going out at the weekends, so my children were left sometimes to their own devices. I thought as teenagers, they were all safe and fine. When actually, I weren't doing a good job, and I wasn't doing a good job. I weren't being the parent that I should have been, and I was selflessly, selfishly, not selflessly, (laughs) selfishly going out getting pissed. And it's so hard afterwards, Lisa, because like you're no longer that person, you're no longer in that situation. 
And then there's a guilt attached to you victim shaming your former self because actually you were a victim of drinking. You know, you yeah. at the time when you were drinking and you were binge drinking and you were going out and numbing your life in very much the way that like my parents were doing that when I was little. That's because they didn't, you didn't, they didn't know how else to deal with those things. It isn't because you were deliberately or intentionally putting anyone at risk. And it's so hard to get over that afterwards, isn't it? You know, like, oh, that guilt and to sort of not shame yourself and be open and vulnerable enough to sort of say, you know what, I, I made a mistake and I'm sorry for that mistake, but I shouldn't be holding guilt for that mistake. It's just really difficult, isn't it? I think it's just a, a really... I, I think, actually, we, we'll do a podcast around this and yeah. ourselves. I think there's such a lot in this podcast with Michael now that's going to touch and help and inspire and, you know, the people. Yeah. Yeah, let's. Um, I know Alex is looking at me now as if to go <laughs> because I've got. I have promised that I will open up more about my story. <laughs> she has done yeah. that. Just she, she's giving me this look like you nearly did it and you pulled back. But honestly, <laughs> I, I genuinely want. This is such an important um, episode, I think, and I think Michael's story is such. People need to hear it. They really, really do. And I think me and you will do an episode, especially around parenting. Yeah, I think that'd be a great idea. And when when you're listening, obviously visit the description afterwards because we've put some links in there that you'll that will you will find useful and you will find helpful. But if you have not listened to Michael's book, Young Offender, edit, please, please get it because honestly, we loved it at the time. And after speaking to him. I might even go back and listen to it again. Yeah, definitely. Well, because it's it, his story and his presence and the way that he's overcome and overcoming what happened is just so inspiring and it, it's touched my heart to the absolute core. So Lisa's nodding. She's not saying anything, but she's nodding. You can't. I didn't say, I, I couldn't speak for a while afterwards. It was really weird. Like I wanted to ask him so many questions, but I didn't either, you know, just to listen and and hear his stories just, well, let's listen. Let's listen. We are going to get him back on at some point. So uh, yeah, enjoy. Hi everybody, we are so excited about this podcast today. We are very honoured to be speaking to Michael Macy, author of Young Offender and I didn't realise it was as long as you've just said, 12 years sober. That is amazing. Hi Michael. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me on. We actually are so excited about this, aren't we Lisa? I finished work early for this. (laughs) (laughs) I have. I've just like got in the car, left everybody, and I'm like, I've got something on, guys. <laughs> so yeah, we are really excited. Um, we've been trying to get you on for ages. So thank you so much for taking the time because we know how busy you are. Yeah, no worries. No, it's a privilege. I think you know what you you're doing is great. So yeah, happy to support it. Can we? Start, like, can, yeah, go on. What were you going to say, Lisa? No, go on. No, nothing. Go on. I was just wondering, can we start? Back in the past. I know you go through it in your book, but can you kind of summarise what brought you to sobriety? Yeah, so I'll, I'll give you the shortened version. So my mum come from a traveller family, a traveller background. Um, and in 
her culture on her side of the family, it was all, it was alcoholism, basically. Everyone drank a lot. Uh, they'd drink and they'd fight and then they'd just move to a new town, cause mayhem there, drink, fight and, and leave. So the men on my mum's side of the family were very much like cowboys, really. Rogues, cowboys, cause a load of mayhem, just move to the next town, run away from their problems. And then on my dad's side, it was slightly different. They had sort of some links to sort of like travellers in the UK on or that would be part of uh, fun fairs and stuff like that. But they, they were settled. But there, it was alcoholism was in that side of the family as well. So there was alcoholism on both sides of the family where I was growing up. And I grew up around it, basically. Drinking was pretty normal. It was pretty normal for, for adults around me to get drunk and get up to all sorts of mischief, fight, smash the place up. And so I grew up like that was pretty normal. And then um, I experienced like neglect, some physical abuse and sexual abuse as a, as a youngster. And I made this decision quite early on that, you know, this, this, this world isn't a friendly place. You know, the people closest to you are normally the ones that hurt you. Um, you can't trust what adults tell you. Um, and, and men are unpredictable. You definitely can't trust men. And, um, and, you know, I created this like alter ego to present myself, you know, which, which is still sort of with me today. I made peace with it, but I call it the security guard. And the security guard is basically took the scared little boy, put him in a corner and said, right, if you want to get to the scared little boy, you've got to get through me first. And how that manifested as a young child was, was, a, was a very wild, angry, unpredictable young child, which a lot of teachers and social workers labelled put all sorts of labels on, you know, uh, potential behavioral problems, personality disorder problems, um, you know, learning difficulties. It was like, I had lots of labels slapped on me when really it was like, if I could project an image of someone who was really wild, scary and unpredictable, it meant I could keep you far enough away from me so you couldn't hurt me. Um, so I was keeping myself safe, always keeping myself safe. I say this now in hindsight, this was all running subconsciously as a young child. And fast forward, you know, sort of 10 years, um, and I discover alcohol and drugs, and alcohol and drugs basically fuel that personality in me even more, where I am, I, I started to believe that I am the security guard, like that scared little boy isn't me. I am this this basically crazy, scary guy. And, you know, it, it sort of led me into gang crime and, and then prison. I was, I was uh, you know, convicted of armed robbery and possession of firearms at the age of 15. And, you know, shortly after sent to prison and spent most of my teenage years in, in a prison cell. And, you know, it, it was tough, really. You know, I'm trying to give you the shortened version of how I got sober, which is hard to condense it. But, you know, I, on my final stint in prison, I attempted to take my own life. And that was, for me, a rock bottom. It was like, um, things have got really bad now. And that was it. I went to my first AA meeting when I was 18 years old. I thought, what a waste of time this is. What a waste of a Friday night. And uh, I couldn't really admit I was an alcoholic because in my mind, an alcoholic was someone who slept on a park bench. And uh, it was hard. I battled for from the age of 18 to 25, trying to convince myself I could drink normally or I didn't have a problem. And then in the end, I was just like, you know, I just can't drink normally because when I drink, I 
I get up to mischief. And, um, and I looked at my father who went before me. I got 15 brothers and sisters from my dad. Mm-hmm. And I looked at my mum, an alcoholic, and I was just like, that's where I'm going if I continue down this path. And so I made the really difficult decision at the age of 25 to, to get sober. And, you know, it wasn't cool back then to be sober. You know, like now it's, it's getting a bit more of a cooler thing. But back then for a 25-year-old to be in AA, well, you're a bit of a loser, you know. So yeah. it was like sitting in AA meetings as the youngest in the room, uh, feeling completely lost. It was, it was hard, but I didn't realize now almost 13 years sober it was it was that defining moment in my life where I didn't realize how much was going to change for the better so yeah that's a shortened version yeah I didn't realize so (laughs) sorry I was just saying we we can't we um I said it'd have to be short because to go into all that in so much depth it really would take us about a full series of podcasts, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, you've got you've got to read your book. That's what it is. That's it's all in book, there. Guys. I don't think we're going to get everything out of you that's not already in the book. It's so honest and relatable. I I just loved it. I didn't realise though, actually, even through reading it. I don't know why I must have missed this bit that you were, that you were so young when you did finally get sober. There were some bits, Michael, in that book where I was like, oh, it frustrated me. I was like, oh, no, no, he's going to relapse again. Well, no, you know, like, so I did kind of want to speak about that and relapsing because it is something that people do. And I class myself as really lucky when I got sober. I, I haven't relapsed. I've, I've done it and I've loved it and I've enjoyed it, but that wasn't really the case for you, was it? No, definitely not. I I think for me, I was one of them. I I was a guy in the in the. If you had it, could have put a bet on who wouldn't make it. I was that guy. Oh, it was like, yeah, I was that annoying guy who'd 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 relapse again and again, and I'd come back and I'd be like, things are going to be different this time. But I, 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 but I don't want to get a sponsor, and no, I don't want to do the step work, and no, I don't want to look in the mirror and get accountable but I'm going to do it all by willpower. Even though willpower has let me down again and again, this time it's going to be different. And I'd be really good for two, three months and then I'd relapse and I'd come back to the meeting with a black eye, you know, and and I'd be like, it's going to be different this time. Oh, bless you. <laughs> it was the wedding one for me. Wedding, I was just going to say when it goes away yeah. and you're like, no! I'm like, oh, no, I was just... <laughs> She's frozen, yeah. but I know so, it. But this must have been so frustrating for the people around you as well to to go through this as well as yourself. Like, what made it different? The final time, what was so different? Yeah, well, it's funny. It, it I'd had a lot of real rock bottoms. Like, you think about the time I tried to hang myself in my prison cell, and I was brought back to life by a prison officer. Like, really, that should have been my penultimate moment like oh my god if if you're not going to get sober now then when are you going to get sober mate like you almost died but it wasn't that in the end mm. it, it, it was a pure mundane existence and they got so sick and tired of just scraping through life along the bottom yeah it just i just got so sick of it i was like i'm just sick of this this existence of making up excuses, 
you know, and it, and it, it was that that really was the final nail in the coffin for me. It was like, I'm so sick of this now. I just can't do it anymore. No, and I think that's what people are going to massively relate to, you know, because everybody's kind of, I think everybody pictures somebody at rock bottom to be where you were in that prison cell. That is rock bottom. That really is rock bottom, but it's not what changed you. It's not what changed your mind. But everybody has a series of rock bottoms when they're drinking, I think. And eventually they get to that point where they are just sick and tired of being sick and tired. And they want more from life. They want more for themselves. I mean, you've had going through your book, there's a lot of people that had a lot of, when you look through it and you, you really fine tune it, there's a lot of people had a lot of faith in you. There was a girlfriend. There was the, was it Mary, the lady Mary? Mary, yeah. Um, yeah. And like, you know, it, and, and the prison guard to bring you back must have thought, you know, this guy's not going to go now. I'm not going to let this happen on my watch. You know, the, there were people fighting your corner. It was just hard to see, wasn't it, at times? Yeah, it was. And I think, you know, when you grow up, in an environment where all the adults around you hurt you, you look, you automatically look for the worst in people, you know, because you're looking through these, this set of glasses where 90% of the interaction with human beings, especially males has been negative. And so you're almost looking for that. You're almost expecting that. And, you know, I'm not deeply religious, but, you know, it says in the Bible, seek and you shall find. It's like, so if you're looking for it, you'll find it. Yeah. And it was like, I was looking. Yeah, it's for the, true. Yeah, yeah. I, I was looking for the worst in people all the time. And it wasn't until when I got sober, I was like the same as what you're saying now. I was like, man, Mary played a big part in my life, man. She was like a, she was like, you know, one of, one of the disciples or something, you know, like a really spiritual woman who wasn't family, who who just was a woman in my community who saw a kid in need, you know, and, um, and, and my girlfriend at the time, Hayley, you know, which, um, you know, she played a big part as well. You know, there was, there was a bit more to that story as well on why that relationship ended, which we couldn't put in the book for legal reasons. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you, you do. And I think you, you know, I, I I'm not religious, but I do believe in God. And I think God puts these people in your path. You know, like I think God mm. works through people and, and God was just working through Mary and Mary saw someone who needed help and her assistance and her guidance, you know, made a difference in my life. It was those bits in the, you know, we just touched on this briefly then, um, Michael, sorry, Wi-Fi is really struggling. So because you're freezing, bit. yeah, you're freezing, but don't worry, carry on. Oh, sorry. But we just touched on this briefly before about how we need more people to see this in children. Like, your book was so relatable to me, but not in a way through me, actually more through my children. And it makes me really emotional. And when I was reading it, it made me really emotional because... I just wish I'd read it like four years ago. And something that's not spoke about very much is criminal exploitation and sexual um, exploitation. Now, this is something that is really big in my area. And my two youngest children um, ended up in very bad crowds and a lot to do with criminal exploitation. And I think if I'd read your book, it would have just helped me to see a little bit about the people that they were hanging around with. Like my daughter was just 11 when a lot of this were happening and 
found her in my car with these older lads or what have you. It was horrible and it was a really bad time to go through as a parent. So reading your book kind of gave me an insight into the people she was hanging around with at that time. Does that make sense? Well, I still wouldn't know what to do or what to say. Like, we're out of that now. Um, thankfully, it was a horrible time and I never, ever want to go back to it. It was it was just awful. But what we need to see, and these kids need helping, don't they? What can we be doing to help? Like, what would you have said to yourself? Is there anything that you... She's frozen again. ...could have said to yourself, or would you just listened or... Yeah, well, I think... The thing is, is that if you had of a of a, of approached me back then, I probably wouldn't have been able to let you in because I was still stuck in this thing that you know. So you imagine if the people if the people closest to you hurt you, your primary caregivers hurt you. Yeah. Then what is everyone else, the average Joe on the street, going to do to you? So if I can't trust my my people that I live with then I definitely can't trust someone on the street. And so I think the only question that possibly could have penetrated through that wall, and it would have had to been delivered in a very non-triggery, non-judgmental way, is, is why are you so angry? Why are you angry? And I remember when a few people asked me that, it was like, oh, no, 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 don't ask me. It, this my head was was going. Don't ask me. <laughs> you don't. You, you don't want to know. You don't want to really know why. But underneath the anger was was grief. I was afraid. I was afraid you were going to hurt me. And underneath that was sadness, because I I had to deal with the grief that my own my own father abandoned me. My mum neglected me, and my uncle abused me. And it's the grief of that little boy. That little boy is grieving. You know. But how liberating now for you? Because, you know, you, you have done what a lot of people never achieve and you have, you somehow, and I don't know how, and I haven't been through half what you went through, but I don't know how you've achieved forgiveness. And you really have. Mm. I yeah. think you're amazing. I, I genuinely mean that as a, an absolute, I hope you just take that as the compliment it is and not patronising. Yeah. Be able to genuinely forgive that. It must be so liberating for you and it must it must have healed you. Yeah, it did. And I, I tell you what it was. I, I went on a workshop with an organization called Clearmind International. And um, and I was, I think I was about four or five years sober. And I started to achieve some nice things in my life, as you do when you get sober. But I never, ever felt like I really deserved it. Like I'd earn a nice bit of money and I'd straight away spend it all because I was so used to just scrimping and scraping that I never got. I never felt like I deserved anything nice. I never felt like I deserved to feel comfortable. And what I had to do was find forgiveness for myself, you know, for all the crimes I committed and all the people I hurt. And I had to trace myself back to when I come out of my mother's womb. Was I a bad kid when I was born? No, I wasn't. You know, what happened? Well, this happened and that happened and life chipped away here and chipped away there and, and out pops this angry kid. But when I was born, I was innocent. Yeah. And through finding my own innocence, I was like, well, if I'm innocent, then maybe my Uncle Tommy was innocent. You know, maybe he was, he was the same. 
And if, and if he was innocent, then maybe my dad was innocent and maybe my mum's innocent and maybe all of us are innocent until life chips away at us and we build walls around our heart, you know? We do this all sober. We say it like in that way, but I've never articulated it like that. But we say, you know, people are doing what they can at the time with the tools they have. Often it's through learned behaviours and patterns that they've experienced. You know, um, my, my parents both, well, my, my dad came from an alcoholic background. He was an alcoholic. Domestic violence in both houses. There was domestic violence in mine. It, you have, somebody along the line has to break those cycles. Mm in order to become the, the better parent or the better husband or wife or teammate or whatever it is that you're striving to be. I mean, you describe a really horrific injury as a little boy. Um, I'm not going to tell because I think people should buy the book and find out what it is. Unless, you <laughs> but, um, Yeah, and, and that was basically, and I hope you don't mind me being so blatant about this, but that was basically because you were left to your own devices due to everybody partying and drinking around you, wasn't it? Yeah. And, yeah. And, I've experienced that, not in the same level, but um, and I have talked about this on a podcast before, when my little baby, who's now four, was two, I got that drunk at a party, at a family party, and it really brought it home to me in your book. And I woke up to go to the bathroom because I was so ill and found him with his hands behind a live plug socket. And it could have been, it wasn't, thank God it wasn't. It was for you, but it wasn't, you know, it, thank God. But to be on the other side of that, and, and I never thought I was a bad parent or neglectful, but looking back, that's what, it, that's what I'd done. I'd, for my, I'd put my own needs first, I'd drank. I'd got into a state where I'd planned the hangover, I'd put paracetamol and water by my bed and brought a banana up so that he could eat that in the morning, just be quiet and let me get over my hangover. And I neglected him and potentially caused a serious accident. I mean, as a parent yourself now, how, how do you find, having never learned real parenting skills, how are you, how are you doing that? Do, do you know the honest answer is it made getting sober seem really easy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I swear, because I had two things running alongside each other when I was learning these parenting skills. It was like, it was really hard learning this stuff. But then at the same note, I was looking at all the things that I wish I had got myself. Yeah. You know, so it was like this sadness was going through all of the learning. You know, I remember the, it started when my first daughter got to the age of two and, you know, they call it the terrible twos. Yeah. And, um, and I remember I, it was one eve. She, she used to have these tantrums around brushing her teeth and I could never quite understand it. And I'd be like, right, come on, darling, brush your teeth. No, I'm not brushing my teeth. And it was like, please, can you brush your teeth, please? Like, no. And it was like, come on, I give it a toothbrush. And she just threw the toothbrush. And in that moment, it was like the only thought that came into my mind was to hit her around the head. And I didn't. I've never hit any of my children. But I, walk, I walked out of the room and I said to uh, my wife, Sasha, I was like, you need to take over because like the only solution my head is coming up with is to resort to violence. And that's because that's what would have happened to me when I was a kid. That's what would have happened. And that was my pivotal turning point where I sat with, I, I Googled a parent, a specialist parent in therapist. And I sat in front of him and I, and I explained the situation and I said, I don't 
like I don't have any plan A or plan B or plan C. It's like the only option my mind has is to resort to violence because that's all that would have happened to me. And he ran me through it and he gave me options and he was like, you can do this and do that. And I remember one of the options was, he was like, imagine she's a fire and you need to put the fire out with love. So you're the fire blanket and you need to get down to her level, maintain eye contact and just ask her what's going on and just put the fire out with love because children up to the age of six don't have the emotional capability to process their feelings. So they'll just act them out, you know, similar to how I did until I was about 25. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, And I remember when he gave me this piece of advice, right? I was like, so you're telling me to just be a fire blanket and that's going to fix. I was like, great. I'm fi- I'm paying you 75 quid an hour. <laughs> a fire blanket exercise. And sorry, excuse my friends there, but um, I was really like, this is never going to work. And, and I remember I'd, I'd done it. She'd done it that night and I got down to her eye level and I, and I said, what, like, what's going on, darling? Why don't you want to brush your teeth? Do you just want a hug? And she just, ran into my arms, put her head on my chest and cried. And I cried. Oh. And I held, I held her, but I held the little boy in me as well. The little boy who never got that compassion and that patience and that love. Oh, Michael, you're going to make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, um, and it was one of them moments where it was like, I can't, I can't ever, I can't ever, ever go back to, the way I was raised, you know, from now on, I'm always going to continue to learn and be a better parent than those who went before me. I just think that's amazing. Honestly, I think that's been a light bulb moment for me. One of my biggest regrets is um, I didn't drink a lot when my children were little, more when they were teenagers, because I thought, oh, it's all right now. (laughs) Um, I've got my life back that is not the case. Warning for when they get teenagers, you never ever get your life back. And so I took my I took my eye off the ball for a bit. But one of my biggest regrets is not stopping drinking earlier. So I could have them moments like that moment is so special and the awareness and you just wouldn't have had that had you not been sober. You wouldn't have thought like that. You wouldn't have took the time to speak to somebody to help you and get it and that's just made me that's going to help me even now even with my teenagers now I think I'm going to be a fire blanket I I am no, I really like that. That was worth seventy five quid. Yeah, you just split it three ways, Michael. You've just you've just actually all chip in and get your money back. Spread <laughs> the fire blanket love all over the sober world. Seventy five parents listening to this episode. A pound each to Michael, please. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's so important. Yeah. Can I ask you about your relationship with your mum? Is that okay? Yeah, of course you can. Yeah. So, like. You know, have you had open conversations now? Have you actually said to her, look, this is what I needed. You didn't do it. I forgive you, X, Y, Z, to heal it. Did did you have those conversations? Well, I did have conversations. But for me, like a lot of the work I'd done, which is not always the case with everyone who gets sober, but I, I work towards a place of emotional responsibility. You know, so like my emotions, my happiness my sadness, my joy, my grief, my fear, and my responsibility, my responsibility to process them. So my sadness that I had around 
my mum and how I was raised, I had to process that myself, you know. And then if my mum my wanted to have a conversation with me about why there were certain boundaries in our relationship, then I can explain my reasons why. But I had to go away and process my, my sadness and process my feelings. Um, and, and, you know, if my mum ever wanted to talk about it, we would. And, and, and there were a couple of times, but I had to be very delicate. So my thing is like being, I, I, today I'm the ideal parent to myself. So I give my little boy what he needed. And so I wouldn't put him in a position where I'd be in a conversation with my mum where she could, you know, sort of re-trigger anything in me again. So I wouldn't go into a conversation if I knew she wasn't emotionally capable of owning her part, you know, and I just look after my little boy. So, you know, but I had to do a lot of work around that, around, around my mum and around my dad. But the, the massive wound around my mum, what it brought up for me was in relationship with my wife was whenever we would get close and I don't mean sexually, but when you'd have a real intimate moment where everything seems perfect, I feel afraid. I, I feel scared. And it's because whenever things would go well with my mum, it was always, my mum would go and get drunk and she'd come home and she'd sober up for a few days and you'd think, great, she's back. And then she'd go and drink again. And if you rinse and repeat that process time and time again, when she's good, you don't even get excited anymore because you know it's not going to last. She's going to go and get drunk again. And so I developed this relationship with feeling good with a female, my mum, the main female in my life, that don't get too comfortable when things are good because they probably don't last and that's what it was like with my wife. You know, it was like when things are good, I just wanted to run. And I was just, I was so lucky. I met someone who had done a course in fer- a therapeutic counseling course and who had therapy herself and just was like, like, what's going on? I know I love you and you love me. Why in these moments do you want to run? And I was like, fuck, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. And I went and I sat in front of a therapist and we pulled it all apart. And it was because, you know, I was scared if you got too close to me, two things were going to happen. A, you were going to hurt me or B, you were going to see how fucked up I was and you were going to reject me. And so for me to have any control over this, so I don't get hurt, I'll just reject you first and I'll just run. And these are like, you know, these are the things that people don't talk about often when you get sober is like, how do I deal with all this trauma from my childhood when it's still manifesting 20 years later? So um, I went on a bit of a rant there, but that, that's... No, it's not a rant. It's Honestly, you, I don't think you realise. I've got people in mind who come to us for help who are just going to be blown away by what you're saying and have, I know it. I know it's going to switch some lights on for people. Yeah, and I think if there's any females it's listening... switching stuff on for me now. I, I, I'm thinking, oh my God, I've had so much counselling and therapy and you're telling me things now that I'm thinking, oh my God, that I've never realised about myself before. So, Yeah, we. I want your therapist. Or actually, I've decided I need to date a therapist. That That is now in stone. That's my next date. <laughs> oh, I can't come up with that, Lisa. 
this is a bit weird for me this podcast if I'm honest Michael because you weirdly it's quite triggering for me and I didn't expect to feel so triggered by the things that you're talking about in so many different ways from my own parenting from my own childhood to my own relationship issues like yeah, I might need a breather after this one. <laughs> but I just want to thank you for being so open and honest Amazing. because, like you said, we don't talk about this. And I think especially when we do get sober, we've got all this stuff going on. And... Oh, she's disappeared. Um, <laughs> it is hard to deal with. And I think it's so important we talk about this. This is, you know... In early recovery, you know, Bill W. and Dr. Bob, they wrote a book called The Language of the Heart. And I think, you know, somewhere we've lost ourselves on that. And and what we're doing now, I feel, is the language of the heart. We're talking from the heart. We're talking vulnerably, openly, honestly. And, you know, and sometimes it's painful and sometimes it's uncomfortable. And sometimes hearing it, it touches something in here that we're like, oh, my God. And that is the language of the heart. It's not always meant to be fluffy and beautiful, but it is meant to touch us somewhere, somewhere deep, you know, and, um, and that's it. And, you know, I think a lot of the stuff you can learn by attending certain workshops. Now, if, if you're a woman and you want to explore some of this stuff more, there's a great fellowship called woman within. They do incredibly powerful workshops. Um, find them online because um, I took part in the, the male version of this organization is called the Mankind Project. And uh, I've done, I've done lots of work with them and trained with, with them as an organization, but the female version, Woman Within, I've, I've met women who've participated in their workshops and it's like meeting these, these women who are so like, they're like goddesses in a lot of ways, you know, because they're so in their power. They're so authentic. They're not trying to dethrone the masculine, but they're also very strong feminine. It's like, I think that's what we all need. We, we, we need to evolve. And, you know, it starts with what we're doing now, you know, getting sober and being honest. So, yeah, absolutely. Experiences. Can, you, you do, well, I don't know if you still do, but you certainly have done talks to young men in, in prisons and so on as well. Yeah. Still do that? Yeah, yeah. So I set up an organisation. It's a non-profit organisation called the CIP Project. The CIP stands for Change is Possible. And I run workshops in prisons and colleges all up and down the UK. And I run workshops here. I just done one at the weekend, actually. We had 20 men come to where I live in Devon. Um, And it's all about helping men get vulnerable and be honest. Like, take your mask off, you know, the mask of you know, I've got it all figured out or I'm Mr. Tough Guy or I'm so strong. Look at me and my big muscles. It's like, let's take your mask off. Where are you underneath all of that? Put all that to one side. Where are you in your life? And are you really happy? Can you step into a more vulnerable place and, and be honest with yourself? And what you find is, and it never ceases to amaze me, is when men are given the opportunity to get vulnerable, that they jump in. And that's what needs to happen when you think, you know, every two hours in the UK, a man kills himself. I think this is why, because we, we've lost the art of speaking from the heart. You know, we're so, we're so trapped up here and look at me, look at my watch, look at my six pack, look at my car, 
look at the house, look at the job. None of that stuff matters. None of it matters. You know, it's, 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 it's about, are you happy within? And that's, why, that's why I try and guide men to, you know, I just think that's amazing. I look now at like my 17 year old son and 17 year old boys, they're not great at the talking and it is that it's look at my watch, look at my top. Everything is like sourced outside of themselves. They're not going in, are they? Which is really difficult. And I just see there just needs to be so much more like that. Like you said, we need to be talking about it. I'd, I'd love for my son to do something like that. I just think it's incredible work that you're doing and everybody in the world needs to hear about it. No, I um, agree, Lisa. You know, I've just discovered another podcast as well um, called Man Down. So he's, he's going in from the perspective of it's not man up. We don't, we shouldn't be telling people to man up. Uh, yeah. Down. And he's actually coming on our podcast in the future as well. But this, I, this is the very reason I, I looked for him. Mm-hmm. Men, they, we shouldn't be telling men to man up. We shouldn't be telling men to put on a brave face, to be the supporter, to be the rock. We shouldn't be doing that. This is why so many men are dying. Yeah. They don't have a platform to just be vulnerable. Of course, yeah. And I think, look, you know, there's a lot of people beating the drum at the minute around men's mental health. And I think, okay, well, what's the solution? If, if the solution is vulnerability, then can you model it for me as a man? What does it look like? Mm-hmm. And that's why in all my conversations, like I have done in this podcast with you, is that I do speak vulnerably and I speak openly and I speak honestly. And it's like, if you want to know how to do it, if you want to see a template of what that looks like, just look forward, watch this podcast again and, and listen to how I talk openly and honestly about my own faults and my own uh, shortcomings, you know, and, and, and do that. Find someone you trust and speak from the heart. Well, I think you've been amazing, Michael, and I can't enough for giving up your time, honestly. Uh, this is no so many people. Before you do go, can we just have a really quick summary of where people can find you? Yeah, sure. So find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. It's at Michael Maisie. That It's my name. Uh, my book is Young Offender. It's available Waterstones, Amazon. It's available everywhere. And if you're interested in any of the workshops that I do, follow us on um, Instagram. It's at the CIP Project. And uh, yeah, hope to see you we'll all there. Those, we'll put those links on there as well, Michael, to make sure people get access to that so you know once again thank you so much it's been honestly one of my favorites so far it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you great and keep doing what you're doing you know we need these strong ladies stepping up and shining so keep shining your light i'm behind you all the way oh thank you so much michael okay big hug again soon hopefully see you soon Bye. bye bye